Turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Look at verse 11. We want to read verse 11 and, and, uh, and then look at some results of what Jesus said. John chapter 14 verse, um, I'm sorry, verse 12 is what I want. I think I said 11. John 14, 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, that would be believing on his name, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. Now notice what Jesus did not say. He did not say those that are especially called to the ministry. He didn't say those that had a special anointing. He didn't say anything about something special from God enabling you to do the works that he did. Not one thing. He said, the only criteria is he that believeth on me. Well, believing in Jesus is believing in his name. You'll see that in the next verse because he tells you how those works are going to be done. Verse 13, and whatsoever, everybody say whatsoever. And whatsoever, that sounds like the sky's the limit. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, we've talked about this before, but it bears repetition because here he's not talking about prayer. He's not talking about asking the Father to do anything. He's talking about the use of his name. This word ask is the word to call for or require or to demand. Now, I always use this example because a lot of times people will hear the word demand and they'll think that you're talking about having a, an arrogant attitude or trying to force God to do something against his will or whatever. And that's not the case. That's not what Jesus is talking about. For example, uh, you don't see it much on checks anymore, but it used to be that the, the uh, not the signature line, but the, the line that shows who you made your check out to used to have in, in small letters, pay to the order of or pay to the demand of. What happens and what, according to the checking account contract you signed with the bank when you opened your account, you have a right to place a demand on deposits that you have placed in that bank. So every time you write a check, you're placing a demand on monies that belong to you that they're holding, that the bank's holding for you. Now, you don't have a bad attitude when you write a check. I mean, that doesn't mean you're happy about whatever you're writing. I write my checks to the government and pay my taxes because I have to, not because I want to. So there may be times you write a check and you begrudge the check, begrudge the money that you're having to spend or pay or whatever. But we're not talking about attitude. There's a lot of checks I write that I'm happy to do. I'm happy to write my tithe checks because I know there's a blessing attached to it. I'm happy to do that. So you could write a check with a bad attitude or with a good attitude. You could write a check with a sour uh, look on your face or with joy in your heart. It has nothing to do with attitude. It has to do with the contract. And you need to understand Jesus is establishing a spiritual contract with the church. Let me read verse 12 again. He said... Verily, verily, I say unto you. And any time verily, verily is there, Jesus is saying truly, truly. He's emphasizing this is the way it is and no other way. So what way is it, Jesus? Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Jesus is not saying, don't ever try to attain what I accomplish as far as works here on the earth. He's not saying that. He's, say, he's saying, you'll do greater things than I did. Now, look at how, how um, different that is from what the modern-day church, the American church at least, thinks about Jesus. Most of the American church looks at Jesus as in a class by himself that nobody could ever under any circumstances approach. 
Well, in the sense that Jesus was the sacrifice for mankind's sins, he is in a class by himself. But as far as doing the works of Jesus here on the earth, preaching, teaching, and healing, which Matthew 9.35 identifies the works of Jesus as preaching, teaching, and healing. When it comes to preaching and teaching and healing, Jesus said, not only are you in my class, you'll do greater things than I did. Now, for me, that's kind of mind-boggling. I don't know how you can get any greater works than what Jesus did. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying is available. The works that I did or do shall you do also, and even greater works than these shall you do. I love the last phrase, because I go unto my Father. Because I go unto my Father. Because I go unto my Father. Well, what happened when Jesus went to the Father? He created a new species of being. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. I like another translation that says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new species of being. Do you realize until Jesus was raised from the dead, it was impossible for anybody to be born again? We understand that. But think about what that means. That means when Jesus was raised from the dead, he opened the door for a brand new existence, a new type of existence, a new type of human being, a human divine being. That's what you are. We think of Jesus as as a divine human being because he came from the Father. He was without sin. He was righteous before the Father, and he operated here on the earth in a flesh and bone body. So that made him a divine human being. Now Jesus has made human divine beings. Because you're just as righteous as he is. The Bible says his righteousness is yours. You're just as right standing. You have just the same right standing before God as Jesus, your elder brother, did and does. God loves you just as much as he loves Jesus. Jesus has given you all authority to operate here on the earth to carry out the plan and the purpose and the will of God. He said so. And you're operating as a divine being, born again, divine being in a human body. Now, our minds don't like to accept that, but that's absolutely the truth. Now, Jesus was a divine, uh, a divine human being because he didn't commit any sin of his own. You're a human divine being because Jesus washed you from your sins. So there is a difference. And in that sense, to that degree, Jesus is in a class by himself. But notice Jesus, who ought to know. Notice Jesus said, when it comes to doing works here on the earth, you have the same capability, the same potential, the same opportunity to do the works that he did and even greater works. Because of this thing that they would not have understood if he had explained it, but this thing that we know of as the new birth. How are we going to do that? Verse 13. And whatsoever you shall call for, require, or demand in my name, that will I do. That will I do. Notice Jesus backs up the use of his own name. That will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Notice the purpose for the use of the name of Jesus, to glorify God. Now, it seems to me that if we take the teaching of the modern-day church and accept that that the idea is that that only the will of God, which so much of the church teaches, you know, whatever God's will is going to happen and so forth. If that's the case, why didn't Jesus put some real strict parameters on this? Why didn't Jesus say, and whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, or whatsoever you shall call for or require, excuse me, I'm quoting another verse, whatever you call for or require in my name, if it falls into this real slim 
territory or boundaries of being in the will of God, then I'll do that. Why didn't he say, whatsoever God impresses you to call for or require a man in my name? That's what I'll do. Why didn't he say, whatever I tell you to use my name for, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Why in the world is he leaving it up to the disciples? For goodness sakes, the disciples. He's leaving it up to them to use his name in whatever way they seem or deem to be appropriate. Now, granted, at this point in time, he's about uh, at the end of his ministry. They've had three years to see how Jesus operated here on the earth. They're acquainted with him. But, folks, I would submit to you that they're not nearly as acquainted with the use of the name of Jesus and the power that's in that name as we are because of Paul's revelation that's given to us. They knew none of these things. My goodness, Peter, even when he was here on the earth, operating in the same day that Paul was preaching, talked about our brother Paul preaches things that are hard to understand. Well, we understand them better than Peter did. And he didn't keep the power of God from working through him when he used the name or called on the name. And, it, it, and, and in that sense, why didn't Jesus put that limitation on it? Why didn't he say, and whatsoever you call for, require my name if you know enough? Or if you're righteous enough, or if you're holy enough, if you're living a good enough life, then I'll do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus left this thing wide open. It's almost as if, now you judge this for yourself, but it's almost as if God's more concerned with the works being done than he is you. Now when that sinks in on you, then you'll really be realizing something because God is more concerned about the works being done in his name, the name of Jesus, than he is the person doing the works. Because the works are not supposed to draw attention to the individual that's doing the works. The works are supposed to draw attention to the name that they're done through or by. It's not about you and me. It's about doing the works of Jesus. Why? Clearly this is the will of the Father. Jesus said, I only do that which I see my Father do. Jesus said, the only things that I do, doing the will of the Father is my meat. In other words, I only do what is the will of God. So if Jesus is telling us that he wants them and us, by extension, his disciples, and notice again, he's not saying because you're apostles, these works will follow you. He said, whosoever believeth in me. Well, that passes any time limitations, doesn't it? We believe in him, don't we? We believe in him just as much as the apostles did in the first century. He's placing no restrictions on it whatsoever. And by telling us, them and us, whatsoever we call for or require in his name, that will he do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Clearly, without question, connected with doing the works that he did here on the earth and even greater works. Clearly, he's identifying that it's his will for those works to be done. So why do we pray? Why do we pray and say, Lord, do you want us to do this? Why does the church stop and hold up and hesitate and say, well, you just never know what the will of God is? Well, Jesus just told us the will of God when it comes to the use of his name. Didn't he? I mean, if this is not what it means, then we need to tear this page out. I love the fact of how these verses come to us. John wrote these verses at the end of his life. It was the last 
of two, uh, well, the last two books that were written was the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. Both of those John wrote when he was in his 90s, just before he passed off the scene. And after all the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have been written, John focuses on what those don't cover. There are very few things that he refers to in the, in the Gospel of John, except for the um, continuity of time, that the other Gospels record. Now, why is that? Well, first of all, he knows everybody else already knows the other stuff. He focuses on things that they don't know. And he gives us more information about times like this. Jesus last night with his disciples and tells us more about the use of the name of Jesus and what Jesus commissioned the disciples to do and carry on in his name than any of the other gospel writers. This is a first-hand account of what Jesus said. And notice how it focuses on doing the works that Jesus did. Here's John at the end of his life, 60-some years after Jesus has been crucified and raised from the dead. He's at the end of a long, long, long life. He's a legend. Because not only of the things that he did in his relationship with Jesus, but the length of his life. He's alive long after Peter, long after Paul, long after the others. He's the last of the remaining original group. And the Holy Ghost inspires him to tell us about the use of the name of Jesus and what Jesus said about the use of his name like nobody else did, like nobody else could. What did he say? He told us what Jesus said his will was. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and even greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever you shall call for or require in my name, place a demand on in my name, in other words, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm with you guys. I'm with you. Notice the use of his name equals him. I'm with you. I want you to do these things. Don't be afraid. I'm right there. Verse 14, he goes even further. He said, if you shall ask anything, same word I ask, call for, require, demand. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. You call for, require, or place a demand on my name for anything, and I will do it. Now, folks, there's only one condition he placed on this. So if we look around the church world and say, well, why isn't why the church doing the same works that Jesus did? Then There's only one answer. There's only one possibility, and that is that the church doesn't believe on him. Oh, we believe he went to the cross. We believe he was raised from the dead. We believe he's seated at the right hand of God and is alive now. But we don't believe in the power of his name to do the works that he did. Why not? Well, for one thing, the church has been teaching for hundreds of years that God doesn't do that anymore. God's not healing the sick anymore. Jesus isn't the same now as he used to be. Even though the Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But we've excused our failures, tried to make excuses, and tried to explain away our failures. Well, we tried to use that name and it didn't work. Well, the same group of people that Jesus is saying this to tried to use his name on a couple of occasions and it didn't work for them either. And that doesn't change one thing about what God's will is concerning the use of his name. I'm sorry, but past church failures do not change the truth of God's word. 
Does it mean we need to learn something? Probably. Does it mean that we need to develop ourselves in a greater level of faith where the truth of the word is concerned? Probably. But it doesn't change the truth of the word. Boy, I'd be a rich man if I had just a nickel for every person that came up to me and said, well, Pastor, I tried that and it didn't work. Oh, well, goodness gracious. Well, might as well throw the Bible away then. That proves it. Tells it once and for all. God's a liar. Because you and all your great spiritual wisdom and maturity tried something that it didn't work. I remember Brother Hagin telling a story one time how that uh, when the Lord appeared to him and ministered some things to him, he told him about a special anointing that would work where uh, casting out devils was concerned. It didn't work this way for for a long period of time, but for several years. He said, Brother Hagin said that when the Lord uh, touched the right finger, the forefinger of his right hand and the palms of each one of his hands, he said they began to burn like a coal of fire and, and the Lord explained to him that was a healing anointing. Well, the Lord went on to say, and he didn't talk about this much, but there were occasions where he related the story how that the Lord told him. He said, now if that power jumps, when you lay hands on somebody, that healing power will go into them and affect a healing and a cure under certain conditions. You had to tell them that I appeared and uh, they have to believe that you're anointed and so forth. But then he told him this. He said, now if you lay hands on somebody and it jumps from hand to hand, that's the presence of an evil spirit. Well, there, were, there was an occasion where Brother Hagin laid hands on somebody. They came for healing. There wasn't a, uh, a case of insanity or anything like that that people normally associate with evil spirits and such. But uh, somebody came up to the front of the, the church service that he was having the meeting in. And he laid hands on him. And when he did, the, he put one hand on his front and one hand on his back. He said that, that uh, healing anointing, that power, that feeling of fire, feeling of burning in his hand, jumped from one hand to another. And he said, so I knew immediately it was an evil spirit. So I told him it was something, um, uh, uh, I don't remember the physical condition. It was something he couldn't do. It was something like bending over or something like that that he couldn't do. So he said, I laid hands on him commanded that evil spirit to, to depart from his body. And then I told him, now, see if you can bend over and touch your toes. The guy couldn't move. So he laid hands on him again. The fire jumped from hand to hand. He said again, evil spirit, I command you to leave his body, to depart once and for all, never to return. Backed up, looked at the guy and said, now see if you can bend over and see, see if you can bend over and touch your toes. The guy tried and couldn't do it. Brother Hagin said, I was flummoxed. He said, I didn't know what to do. He said, I tried to exit this just as gracefully as I could. He said, I knew something was keeping it from working. He said, so I just said, well, okay, go and go in faith, you know. Tried to ignore what didn't happen. Went back, started walking back up to the platform, and Jesus was standing there. And he said, Jesus, every time that he'd seen him up to that point, Jesus had just a look of love and kindness in his face. He said, this time his eyes were like shooting lightning. He said, I told you that when there was a presence of an evil spirit, you were to cast that spirit out and they'd be set free. And Brother Hagin answered the Lord and said, well, Lord, I did that twice. He said, I I did it twice and it didn't work. And Jesus pointed his finger and stomped his foot and said, I said it would, real loud voice, and disappeared. Uh, Now, I don't know about you, but, but in my thinking, that'd mess up your service. So Brother Hagin is standing there still bewildered and all of a sudden he saw it. 
just quick as you snap your finger, he said, I saw it. He said, he turned around, that guy was still walking back. It happened so fast. That guy was still walking back to his seat, and he said, hey, you, you, come back up here. Come back up here. Guy turned around and walked back up there. He laid hands on him. He was waiting for him, pounced. He laid hands on him, and the fire began to jump back and forth between his hands, and he said, you evil spirit, I command you to go and never to return. Come out of him now in the name of Jesus. And this time, he backed up, and instead of saying, see if you can bend over and touch your toes, he commanded him. He said, bend over and touch your toes in Jesus' name. Man was instantly free. Now, what if they'd stopped before Jesus appeared and, and corrected the situation? What if... This man had gone back to his seat, and Brother Hagin was left thinking about that for the rest of his ministry. See, things like that is what causes people to think it doesn't work. But it's not problems on God's end. It's not problems on the power end. There may be things that we don't know. There may be things, and Brother Hagin wasn't trying to do something wrong. He just made a mistake. But that mistake was about to cost that guy's deliverance, except the Lord corrected him. Can you see that? Past failures do not negate the truth of God's word. They just don't. Now, there are some things that I still wonder about. There are some things I have questions about. There are things that I thought I was in faith about that didn't, didn't come to pass. And I don't have the answers. I understand faith failures, although that's really a misnomer. Faith really doesn't fail. But I understand what it is to think that you're in faith and, and for something not to work. I get that. The question is, what are we going to do if situations like that occur? Are we going to let those turn us away from the truth of the word? I'm glad these guys didn't. See, these guys had already had some failures. They tried to cast the evil spirit out of the, the uh, young boy whose father brought him in Mark chapter 9. And it didn't work for him. Jesus made it work, but they didn't. So now here at the end of Jesus' life, end of Jesus' ministry, life here on the earth, I mean, at the end of his ministry, just before he goes to the cross, he tells them about the use of his name. Now notice he didn't pat him on the back and say, now, look, I know you guys have had a hard time while I was here. And there were times where you tried to make it work and it just wouldn't work. I know you gave it your best. Everybody wants God to pat them. But if you decide that the word is true and I'm going to change whatever I need to change to live up to the word, you don't need so much patting. Now, I understand most people won't go for that. John G. Lake called this the strong man's way to God. And a lot of people just don't want to be strong. They want to call themselves strong or they want to think that they are strong, but they're not willing to do what it takes to be strong. It's a rare bird among the church. To find somebody that's really willing to do what it takes to be strong. And I'm glad Jesus was strong. Where would we have been if Jesus had been as flaky as a lot of Christians? We never would have made it to the cross, that's for sure. So what did these guys do? Well, these guys, from this point, these guys watched him die on the cross and scattered like crazy. Went back to fishing. Thought they were giving up on the whole thing, and then Jesus appears to them. Now turn with me over to Acts chapter 3. Because after Jesus appears to them, then he spends about 40 days 
40 some odd days popping in and out of their lives. He'll appear, talk to them, eat with them sometimes, and then disappear. They never know when he's going to show up. Boy, my mind just goes crazy over those 40-something days. Can you imagine waking up every morning and thinking, I wonder if he's going to show up today. And then that pop, there he is. Walks through the wall sometimes, sometimes just appears. Can you imagine those 40 days? Can you imagine how that would change your outlook on the possibilities that are available in, uh, in this life? Well, Jesus is just as real whether he pops into uh, some kind of form that you can see or not. The possibilities are just as real now as they were for them then. But it changed their whole outlook. They realized Jesus really is alive. And folks, Jesus really is alive. I mean, he really is alive, whether you ever see him or not. He really is alive. We all see him. Some of us see him before others. But we'll all see him because he really is alive. He really did do everything that the Bible said that he did do. Now, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Ghost is poured out and, and thousands of people get saved. Now, notice the first thing it tells us about after the day of Pentecost and after the church begins its existence... Notice in chapter 3, the first thing that it tells us is about the use of the name of Jesus. Now, don't think that's coincidental. The Holy Ghost is showing us, here's the order of things. They were saved. They were filled with the Holy Ghost. They told people about Jesus being alive. And now they're going to use the name. Verse 1, now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer being the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they did daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of him that entered into the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he, the crippled man, gave heed unto them, Peter and John, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. Now stop right there for a minute. Peter and John knew they had something. If we stop right there and never read another word in the book of Acts, they've got more than most of the church world knows about what belongs to them in Christ Jesus. They know they've got something. They know they've got something. What do you have? What do you know you have? Now, again, if Peter and John are most Christians, modern-day Christians at least, They'd walk in and they'd say, brother, we're going to pray for you. Oh, I don't mean now. We'll turn in a prayer request for you at church. Because God wants you well. But they knew they had something. Now, granted, they had a little bit more experience with this than, than, uh, than we do. Because this is the kind of stuff they did when Jesus was here on the earth. Jesus gave them, when he was here on the earth, Jesus gave them power to heal all manner of sickness and disease and to cast out evil spirits. They're used to setting people free. And I get that there's a learning curve to that. Okay, no problem. But they knew they had something. Now, when was it that they became aware that they knew or to know that they had something when they were filled with the Holy Ghost? See, them being filled with the Holy Ghost changed their lives. They already knew Jesus was alive. 
They knew Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. They knew this was coming. They knew something was coming. They might have known the extent of what it was. I'm sure that it, it, it beat anything that they could have imagined. But when the Holy Ghost came upon them and they spoke with other tongues, they knew it wasn't them. They knew that this was something from God himself that Jesus foretold. Well, what else did Jesus foretell? Jesus foretold that whosoever believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and even greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever you call for or require and demand in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, call for or require and demand anything in my name, I will do it. They realize this power of the Holy Ghost that gave us utterance in other tongues. This is it. This is what Jesus said we'd use his name to accomplish. So Peter and John look at this guy and Peter says, such as I have, give I thee. Such as I have, give I thee. You know why the church doesn't do more than it does? It doesn't know what it has. You can only give somebody what you have. You can never give them what you don't have. And what was the criteria Jesus said? He that believeth on me. What did they know they had? They knew they had faith in what Jesus said would be. I don't believe for a minute that they felt power. I don't believe for a minute they looked at this, this crippled guy sitting there, which the Bible identifies as over 40 years old, crippled from his mother's womb. I don't believe for a minute they looked at him and all of a sudden they were washed in power and started vibrating. Wait till I get this guy. I don't believe that for a minute. If that's true, God gave them something he doesn't give us. What did they know they had? They had faith in his name. They had a belief that what Jesus had told them about the use of his name was true. That's all they had. Same thing you and I have. Or at least the same thing you and I can develop. We've got the same thing they had. We can develop faith in it just like they did. Silver and gold have I none, Peter said, but such as I have, give I thee. What do you got, Peter? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with him into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Notice how many times it says he, le he leaped or walked or, or uh, that kind of thing took him by the right hand lifted him up and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength and he leaping up stood Peter lifted him up the first time but after that the man's jumping and he leaping up stood and walked and entered with them into the temple walking and leaping this guy's doing a lot of walking and a lot of leaping I guess so after 40 some odd years of being crippled how would you act probably just like this guy and he entered with them into the temple walking and leaping and praising God and all the people saw him walking and praising God walking's big and all the people saw him walking and praising God and they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple and they were all filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened unto him and as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, he's not letting these guys go. He's not about to turn loose of these fellows. As he held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them, 
in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. Can't you imagine the buzz going on in the temple? What happened? How did this guy walk? We know who this guy is. He's been here forever. This is his begging spot. Now look at him. What happened? And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, You men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look you so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or our own holiness we had made this man to walk? I love the fact that the Holy Ghost put this scripture in here. Because this is the very fact, this is the very cause that the modern day church says that they were able to heal this guy. Because they were apostles. They had, because they were apostles, they had a special place with God. And because they were apostles, they had special power that we don't have. Now notice that Peter says that there are two things that didn't do the work. Their own holiness, which means their own special place with God because they're apostles. Or their own power, which the church world says they had because they were apostles. Now who's going to know better than them? The theologians of today? Or them? Why look ye on us? As if by our own holiness we made this man to walk. It wasn't a special place we had with God that did it. Or by our own power we had done it. It wasn't some special power that we've got. What did do it? Notice it says God did it. They gave credit to the Lord. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his son Jesus. Now do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 14 verse 13 talking about the use of his name? He said, and whatsoever, talking about doing the works and even greater works because he's going to the Father, verse 12. Verse 13 says, and whatsoever you shall call for, require, demand in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. This fits that criteria. To the letter. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his Son, Jesus. Whom you delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murder to be granted unto him. And have killed the Prince of Life, whom God has raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. Now, folks, I've got to tell you that uh, verse 13, or the last part of verse 13, 14, and 15, that sounds to me like he just zinged them. It wasn't really relevant to the work of the, the God that was done, the healing work that was done in the crippled man. But it sounds like he wanted to take out every opportunity. You killed him. You were crying for Barabbas to be released. You denied him when he was standing before Pilate. But God raised him from the dead. Verse 16. And his name. Everybody say his name. And his name through faith in his name. Has made this man strong. Whom you see and know. Yea the faith which is by him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. I like William's translation on this, first part of the verse. It said, on the grounds of faith in his name, has his name made this man strong? Yea, the faith which is by him, the faith which is by him, the faith which is by him, has given him this first soundness in the presence of you all. Then he preaches to him. Then chapter 4 tells us about the religious people coming up. Verse 1, And as they spoke unto the people, 
the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Now, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's why verse 2 is here. Being grieved, the Sadducees being grieved, that the, they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. Sadducees did not. And so they laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word, that means the preaching of Peter from uh, verse 12 down through verse 26. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men that believed were about 5,000 people. 5,000 people got saved. That says men because the part of the temple that they were in didn't have any women there. But what do you think when these men went home and talked to their wives and the rest of their families about the healing miracle that they saw, the belief that they've exercised in Jesus and the change that's taken place in them? Folks, the number of people that got saved in that day could have been twenty to 25,000, 30,000 people. It says 5,000 men got saved and it came to pass on the morrow the next day that their rulers and their elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem you realize that the priesthood was a family business the descendants of Aaron it goes you can only be high priest for a certain period of time and so uh, Caiaphas which was the high priest when Jesus went to the cross, is now an underpriest, a lesser priest, and Annas is the high priest. Annas was his son-in-law. And so this thing kind of traded back and forth between family members when uh, certain ones were in, in power. So they gathered together at Jerusalem, and when they had set them, Peter and John, in the midst of them, they asked, notice what their question is, by what power or by what name have you done this? Notice what they know. They don't know Jesus from anybody. As far as they're concerned, there's a rumor going around about Jesus' body being, or his grave being empty and his body was stolen, but they've tried, they just put that out of their mind. When Jesus appeared in, in Jerusalem, he's not appearing to the high priest, so it's not creating a problem for them. This is the first evidence of any problem that's arisen. And that is, now these two guys, only two guys in their estimation, are preaching about Jesus being raised from the dead. So that's going to be an issue for them. But notice what they asked. They asked, where did you get the power or who gave you the authority to do this? Now think about how silly that question would be if it was asked today. First part, maybe so. Where would you get the power to heal this crippled man? But the second question, by what name? Who gave you the authority to do this? Who has the authority to give to heal the cripple? Can you imagine anybody asking that question today? I can't. By what name have you done this? Because I'm thinking, and I'm not talking about being saved, and I'm not talking about being a pastor. I'm thinking, if somebody has the power to do this, I want to know it. And if there is some name whereby there is ability to heal the sick or change physical conditions of sickness and disease, I want to know it. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. How many people in the world would think that way? 90 plus percent. If the world found out that there was real power in the name of Jesus to heal the sick, what do you think would happen? 
Well, you'd have them press, talking about how it's a fake and a joke and not real and all this kind of stuff. And for goodness sakes, we can't offend the Muslims. But what do you think real people would do? Real people would run to the place where that name and that power was in operation. You know, when the Bible talks about in James chapter 5 and verse 7 that Jesus is the husband and he's waiting for the precious fruit of the earth before he comes back, how long do you think it's going to take for the precious fruit of the earth to come in? We're used to church programs. We're used to evangelistic efforts. We're used to trying to get into countries and trying to preach the gospel and setting up open-air meetings and having evangelistic crusades and stuff like that. If the name of Jesus began to be used worldwide, people would flock to the power that could change the bondage that holds them in check. Flock to it. F.F. Bosworth used to say that healing is the dinner bell. You start getting the sick healed, salvations is simple. As a matter of fact, that was the earmark of his ministry. F.F. Bosworth was a, a son of a minister, and he grew up in kind of a denominational setting. It was before some of the denominations, some of the larger denominations were um, in operation. But kind of a fundamentalist, maybe that's a better way to say it rather than denominational, a fundamentalist type setting. And they, they believed that, that the power of God was available to heal. His dad was a, um, well, again, he was before the full gospel organizations were established. But they believed the truth of the Bible. But they put the emphasis on evangelism. His family put the emphasis on evangelism. He followed the pattern of his father. And so he would go and have meetings and, and he would put the emphasis and, and just talk about Jesus dying on the cross. Who wants to receive Jesus as Savior? And he'd get people saved. But the Lord dealt with him. He didn't appear to him and didn't have a vision, but he dealt with him very strongly about preaching the whole gospel. He didn't know what the whole gospel was. And the more he prayed and the more he meditated on it, he realized that the Lord was telling him to emphasize healing. So instead of emphasizing salvation, evangelism, he started emphasizing the power of God for healing. And as a result, he started getting people healed. He'd lay hands on the sick and then people would get healed and some serious and critical life and death situations would be healed and people would be restored. And he said, I found that I'd get 10 times, at the least 10 times more people saved by preaching healing than by preaching salvation. And even throughout his ministry, and he lived a long life, even throughout his ministry, he was preaching as an old man in his 80s. 80, I think he was 88 years old when he finally went home to be with the Lord. He said as he was preaching a series of, of meetings in his old age, he said people would criticize him. It became something that was common in his ministry. People would criticize him. You put too much emphasis on healing and not enough on salvation. And he'd tell people, well, let me tell you what I found out. I found out I get more people saved by multiples of 10 by preaching healing than I ever did by preaching salvation because people want to see the power of God. And when you show them that God will heal their bodies, they're willing to serve him and give him, give him their lives. By what power or by what name have you done this? By what power or by what name have you done this? You know what I'm looking forward to? 
I believe we'll get there. I'm looking forward to when the government asks the church, how are you doing this stuff? Now, they may not have good motives about it when they ask. They may want to regulate us. And a lot of the healing ministers throughout, the, throughout history have been charged with practicing medicine without a license. As a matter of fact, uh, there, were, there were situations in uh, uh, America and then also in other countries as well. There was a, uh, a meeting that uh, William Branham was holding in Sweden, and they uh, charged him with practicing medicine without a license. And F.F. Bosworth was working with Brother Branham at the time as an older minister. As a matter of fact, uh, Bosworth had come out of retirement to work with Brother Branham in his healing ministry. And, uh, and so Bosworth was the one that had to appear before the Swedish court. And you know what he did. He just preached what the Bible says. He just told them what the Bible says, so here's why we do what we do. But as a result, Branham didn't minister in Sweden the way that he normally does. But God's smart enough to know what the problem is. So instead of having people come up and laying hands on them, he never touched them. And got just as miraculous a healing results in that meeting as he did anywhere else he went. God knows how to work around the people that are trying to restrict you. But wouldn't it be something for the church to want to know from, uh, I'm sorry, for the government to want to know from the church, how are you getting these people healed? That happened with John Lake. John Lake was in Africa when the bubonic plague broke out. And the Army Corps of Engineers sent a, a group of people over to South Africa, doctors, medical team, to try to help the people. They asked him. They saw John Lake working with the sick and, and the, the people would, would die and there was this bloody froth that would come out of their mouth and so forth and, and it was uh, you know just teeming with, with the germs and virus and that kind of stuff, very contagious. But they saw Lake never got anything and he didn't use the protection. He never contracted the disease and didn't use some of the protection that the Army Corps of Engineers, Medical Corps of Engineers was using. So they asked him, they said, What's your, uh, what do you use for immunization? Clearly you're immune to this stuff. How'd you become immune? You know what Lake answered? Romans 8, 2 is my immunity. The spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death and proved it to him. Oh, I'm looking forward to those days again. When the government has to ask the church, how are you doing this miracle stuff? How are you getting people healed? By what power or by what name have you done this? Let me finish this up. Then Peter filled with the Holy Ghost said unto them, you rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed, healing is good, of the good deed done to the impotent man by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him, notice again, Jesus equals his name, or the name equals him. Even by him does this man stand here before you whole. What did Jesus say? Whatsoever you call for requiring my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The Bible says they took knowledge, took account of the fact that Peter and John were ignorant and unlearned men. 
Now, the room is full of educated, intelligent people that don't have enough power to blow their nose. But it's the guys that don't know anything that have done the healing work. So what do they do? Well, notice they conferred among themselves, verse 16, saying, what shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle has been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem. And we can't deny it. Folks, this is what I love. I love when the people, that, the powers that be, can't argue with the power of God. It's available today just like it was for them. The fact that a notable miracle has been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But that it spread no further. Here is the work of the devil. But that it spread no further among the people. Let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. In other words, you guys go ahead and have your church services. We don't mind that. We don't care how big your church gets. You go ahead and have your little worship services and your your community activities and, and all that kind of stuff. That's fine. Feed the poor. Great. We don't mind that. Just don't talk about the name. Do whatever you want to do. Just leave off the stuff about the name. But that it spread no further among the people. Let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Folks, what's the thing that's changed in the, the early days of the church and the modern days of the church? The teaching on the name of Jesus. By and large, the devil has accomplished his purpose. The devil doesn't care if you have church. The devil doesn't care if you get people to come to the altar. The devil doesn't care if you teach that Jesus went to the cross and was raised from the dead. But don't talk about there being any power in the name. Because that causes it to spread among the people. And dear Lord, we can't have that. So what does the devil do to stop it from spreading among the people? He threatens them. Commands them not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. Well, then the reverse would be true. What's going to cause it to spread among the people? Both in Jerusalem and in where we live too. Preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. Preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. Because Jesus stands behind his name. But Peter said, and John answered, and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, you be the judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. In other words, we can't keep them talking about Jesus and his name because that's what we know about. So what do they do? They go to their own company and they pray. Verse 29, And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. Folks, it's all in the name. You know what Christmas time is about? It's not about a baby being born in a manger. It's about the name that he left us. It's about the name that he left us. 
God cares less about sitting nativity scenes and whether or not they're legal than he does about the use of his name now among his people. Use his name. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the wonderful name. Lord, we know that it's true what you tell us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and has given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things or beings in heaven and things or beings in earth and things or beings under the earth. Thank you for the name of Jesus. Thank you for the name of Jesus. Father, we place a demand on the name of Jesus in our own bodies. We thank you for healing. We thank you that every sickness and every disease under the name of Jesus, which everyone is, must go from our flesh in the name of Jesus. Now, Father, we claim this not just because we want to receive everything Jesus did for us, but we want to be an example to the world. We want to be an example to others of what faith in the name of Jesus will produce. Father, let it be so in our day and with us, even as it was in the early days of the book of Acts, where the religious leaders and where the government comes and says, by what power or what name have you done these miracle works? Father, bring in the precious fruit of the earth by a move of the Holy Ghost. Now, we're not stupid enough to think that a move of the Holy Ghost is going to be separate from the name of Jesus. The Holy Ghost instead is going to prompt us to utilize and place a demand on that name so that miracles and signs and wonders are done. So, Father, have your way. Move by the Holy Ghost so that the name of Jesus is proclaimed. Move by the Holy Ghost so that the name of Jesus is utilized. Moved by the Holy Ghost so that the Father is glorified in the, name, in the Son, Jesus, because of the use of that name. We thank you for the sick being healed. We thank you for the crippled being healed. We thank you for the lame being able to walk and the blind being able to see. We thank you for the deaf being able to hear. We thank you for the disappearance and the removal, the erasure of diseases that medicine just has no cure for. Father, we thank you for the power of God to operate in these last days like never before known in the history of mankind. Bring in the precious fruit of the earth by the name of Jesus being amplified and magnified and used. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that whatever we demand in your name, you do. Thank you for the precious name that's given to us. Amen. Amen. Folks, we're coming into some good days. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. If you can be back with us on Christmas Eve, please do so. It'll be a great service. And if not, Merry Christmas. <laughs>